looking back at some of the other honors, there's the We Met Caddy Scholarship Fund. You must be very proud of that. I'm very proud of that. Uh, that Caddy Fund was organized in 1949, and uh, it has been a source of great satisfaction to me. There's no story that could ever be told that is richer or sweeter than the story of Francis and Eddie. And may your lives be full of birdies and eagles. Hello and welcome to Legacy, the We Met Fun podcast. If you'd like to go back and check out any of our prior conversations on the Legacy podcast, you'll find those in our feed, as well as on our website at www.wemet.org. In our prior episodes, you'll hear discussions with amazing We Met Fund leaders, supporters, donors, and alumni who have helped the fund arrive where we are today. Excited to celebrate our 75th anniversary in 2024 and awarding $3.25 million in need-based college scholarships to more than 440 hardworking young men and women. Now, on today's episode, we are excited to welcome on We Met alumnus Glenn Kelly, the longtime head golf professional at Woods Hole Golf Club in Falmouth, Massachusetts, and a lifelong supporter of the We Met Fund and its mission. Glenn grew up in Pembroke, Massachusetts, and began working at a young age as a caddy at Pembroke Country Club. Glenn's love for the game of golf would lead to a celebrated career. As he joined Woods Hole Golf Club in 1985 as assistant golf professional to legendary head pro Dutch Westner. Glenn was promoted to head golf professional at Woods Hole the following year and has been a staple in the club's community ever since. In addition to supporting the Woods Hole membership for nearly four decades, Glenn has been deeply involved with the Cape Cod chapter of the PGA and during his career has served as district director. For his incredible career and sterling reputation in the industry, Glenn received peer recognition as he was elected to the prestigious Quarter Century Club of the PGA. Anyone who knows Glenn is aware of his penchant for storytelling, as well as his dedication to giving back to charity. For decades, Glenn has led Woods Hole's successful caddy program and has guided more than 50 young men and women to WeMet scholarships totaling more than $300,000. There are few people who better represent a leader in the WeMet Fund community. And in 2023, Glenn received the fund's Golf Professional of the Year Award to highlight his career of giving back. We are extremely grateful and fortunate to have Glenn Kelly as a WeMet alumnus and supporter, and we hope you enjoy our conversation. Thank you for listening. Colin was telling me that he happened to sit next to you at the Mass Golf Annual Meeting yesterday, of all things. I know. Yeah, it was kind of like a preseason game. It was. Yeah. <laughs> I was. I literally had Glenn in my mind. I walked in. He's the first person that I made eye contact with. It was funny. And Glenn, we didn't get a chance to catch up after Kernwood. How did you and your group play? Well, I mean, if they had a pro, we would have been competitive. <laughs> but it was really, it was so much fun from start to finish put the award aside just to be with the members. I haven't done that in a while. And it just reminded me that I need to play a little more. Great golf course, yeah. too. I forgot how good that place was. Someone on the staff at Mass Golf was telling me that they had recently taken out a ton of trees, and that's what opened up some of the views that you saw of the water. It was gorgeous. Spectacular, yeah, because I don't remember that many holes on the water. So many at Kernwood. It just felt like yeah. every hole you turned around, you had a view of three or four holes and water. Exactly. Kind of that long view that every architect loves. And there's a couple of good views, Glenn, at Woods Hole as well. So you're, you know. <laughs> oh, my God. Tremendous. Yeah. It's absolutely stunning, the views at Woods Hole. Glenn, we're really excited to have you on today. Thank you for taking the time. There are a few people in the Massachusetts golf community who have the professional and charitable resume that you have. And the We Met Fund really is fortunate to have you in our community as an alumnus, as well as a lifelong leader and champion of our mission. So we thank you for that. And we're really looking forward to covering a number of topics with you today. But we wanted to start where we do with all of our guests, which is centered around your personal relationship with the game of golf. When do you first remember being introduced to the game? What was your first memory of being on or around the course? Probably back in Pembroke, I wanted to play 
every sport but golf. I wanted to be a baseball player, a football player, and I sucked at every sport I attempted until I found golf. And then I had a little bit of success. The clubs that I learned with are out in the pro shop here. There were wooden shafts from my great aunt Elizabeth, who played the game up in Rochester, New York. So I literally come from another century of <laughs> wooden shafts. Not for long, but that's what we learned the game of golf with, my brother Brian and myself. So we found them in the cellar of our house. We got some golf balls and we went around the yard, broke a few windows. And then that's when we were told to go up to Pembroke Country Club, where they had just built a nine-hole golf course on some farmland that a family called Lanzalotta owned, the Lanzalotta brothers. So they built nine holes in the late 60s and then an 18-hole golf course in 1971. And that's where it all began. That's amazing. So it was you and Brian poking around the backyard with the hickory shafts. I'm just thinking back to growing up myself and kind of getting pushed towards the working side. Like as soon as there's a chance to work, and I'm grateful looking back at getting dropped off at Blue Hill Country Club in Canton growing up in Braintree. Growing up, Glenn, was there like a work ethic and a drive to go not only to play golf, but maybe to like to start working in golf as well? The membership cost $50. And my father said, if you want it, go earn $50. So I was mowing lawns for Edith Tracy, who lived just up the street. She was a member there, so that was $5. I'd have to wash and brush this poodle that Mrs. Burpee had across the street. And she also had a pet rooster. So not only did I have to take care of the dog, but I had to look out for the rooster that would come around. So it was pretty challenging. And then the caddying aspect. And you know, obviously that was the most fun, caddying at Pembroke. So you wore many hats from a young age, it sounds like, a lot of unique jobs. Did you just end up going right up to the pro shop in those early days? Do you remember what age you were? And were there any other memorable fellow caddies or memorable members at the club at the time that stick out to you? There weren't too many caddies. I think even my brother gave up at an early stage, but Brian liked playing and he wanted to just beat everybody on the circuit. I like to play, but I like to make new friends. So I kind of use it more as a social thing. I did play junior golf. My biggest goal was to win the state junior championship. I mean, I just wanted to win that thing so badly. And sadly, it was not meant to be. But hanging out at Pembroke, you grew up fast because you were around adults all day long. So my mother said it was the best daycare center ever. She would leave us at the club at 7 a.m. with $5 and pick us up at 7 p.m. Beautiful. And I'm thinking back of the people that you work around. Were there mentors, Glenn, at the club, whether they're your supervisors or members? Yeah, the first golf pro was Ernie Carlson. And I think he came from Duxbury. And he was like the epitome of a club pro, just real stylish, a good game. Not sure if he was a PGA member or not. I think he was in computer sales and then he got into golf. And then Chick Fisher came along, who had been the pro at Braintree Municipal. I caddied for him in the Brockton City Four Ball when he won with Bruce Douglas. First time I ever saw a $50 bill. <laughs> for three days of caddying, I got a $50 bill and I'd never seen one before. Didn't know if it was real. Kind of a sheltered life I led. And then, of course, the infamous Tom Randall who was the teaching pro, assistant pro, later became general manager. And then we learned- He had marked bills, right? A year, a year or two ago, turns out he wasn't really Tom Randall, but he was this fellow named Ted Conrad, who had robbed a bank in Cleveland, Ohio, back in 1969, and then went on the run and ended up at Pembroke Country Club as the assistant pro. And none of us ever knew it. 
Colin introduced me to that story, and it's in the Boston Globe. I know you gave the brief description there, but can you describe this man to us and maybe just give a little bit of detail for those out there who are probably shaking their heads saying, what? Yeah, he would pick me up every morning, and he said, don't be late or I'm going to start honking the horn, and I'm going to wake up all your neighbors. So he, of all people, taught me how to be on time because you didn't want to embarrass the family with a guy in a Buick Regal blaring the horn because you didn't get up early enough to get to the golf course. So he was a character. He had a good golf game. We were just told that his parents had died in either a plane crash or a fire and not to bother him and don't ask too many questions. So we didn't. And he was kind of this cool, young assistant pro and I caddied for him, worked for him. And then we kind of parted ways in 1981 when I went up to Charles River. And then we did reunite maybe four years ago because one of our members, Jimmy Duffy, had run into him in a tournament. And he came back and he said, oh, I met an old friend of yours. Great guy. I said, who's that? He goes, Tom Randall. I'm like, oh, there's a name from the past, <laughs> not knowing what he had done. So we did reunite and he came down to Woods Hole and he played. But it's not like there was this confession of any kind. He said, thanks for having me. So I did see him before he died, but he never let on at all. And he led for a while that daycare for other younger kids, right? <laughs> kind of like Fagan to borrow of a twist. That's amazing. Glenn, jumping ahead, I mean, somewhat connected, but still jumping ahead. I mean, there are life lessons that you learned there caddying that all caddies learn. People working in golf, whether it is early mornings on the grounds crew or at the bag drop. Do you feel there are certain tenets that would be a requirement back then and maybe still hold true today to be a good caddy, things that hold up in the test of time? I think you have to have a love of the game. And also, you have to act 10 or 15 years older than what you are. There's not a lot of time for silliness or immaturity. And I think that will advance you years later. I mean, I've seen so many of our caddies at Woods Hole go on to great careers because they acted 10 or 15 years older than what they were. It's not like they were super serious, but they knew it was an important time for that golfer. He was having fun, but you weren't supposed to be too silly out there. Take it seriously and you'll be rewarded. Everything, the honesty, the integrity that the game teaches you, instills in you, just play by the rules and you'll be okay. That is true, Glenn. I always felt you knew somebody who grew up working in golf as compared to perhaps another job. There's a skill set that is taught from working in golf that other jobs just can't teach you. And, and we certainly see it with our We Met Scholars. People are always telling us how mature our We Met Scholars seem to be. So I think you're spot on with that. Now, I want to talk about your attending college. Was that an expectation in your household growing up? And if so, when the time came, how did you decide on where you wanted to go? And did you already have in your mind that you were thinking of a career in golf? My guidance counselor said I should have been an accountant. Nothing against accountants, but I don't know where he came <laughs> up with that. <laughs> but no, I just loved the game of golf. I loved the business of golf and the friendships that I made and the people in it. And I just thought it was a very cool profession. So I worked practically every day all through high school, whether it was caddying or working in the shop. And then when that closed down, I worked at a men's clothing store called Kennedy's Clothing at the Hanover Mall. So I continued that retail world. And I tried college, but I didn't last. I mean, I lasted one year. But I made sure that I didn't waste any of my parents' money, so I never accepted any money from my parents. 
I did it well with what I made and the scholarship from the We Met Fund. All eight hundred dollars. <laughs> Two hundred the first semester, six hundred the second. And I did make it through the second semester, but it wasn't for me. So I got into the golf business with the help of a friend named Mel Cow and got a job at Charles River Country Club in nineteen eighty one. Andy Froud took a chance on a young nineteen year old and took me on board and taught me a great deal. I'm just trying to link your guidance counselor, a year at Stonehill, and then the golf business. I mean, there are elements to that where it's pretty unique for the public. I mean, some of the public listening doesn't know what it takes being a head golf professional. You've got customer service. You do have financial management, hiring staff, and you're an HR department, teaching, lessons, merchandising. I mean, the list goes on. Talk about how you can lean into different skill sets in your world. First and foremost, be a good listener and don't fake it. Really listen to these people. And from there, you build those relationships and you do the best you can. And something as simple as returning messages within 24 hours. I know a lot of assistants that move on and they said the one thing they learned from me is you don't have a lot of return phone calls. You get back to everybody within 24 hours. And I saw a podcast from Larry Fish, who is a member here, president of Citizens Bank. And he said, nobody's that important that you can't get back to somebody within 24, 48 hours max. And I kind of knew that, but him saying that, that's just kind of the rule of thumb here. Try to get back to everybody within 24, 48 hours. Those are great lessons. And it seems that those were learned in 1981 when you started Charles River. And bridging the gap between being an assistant professional at Charles River through to when you started at Woods Hole. Did you spend those four years solely at Charles River or did you work at other clubs? So my career, they're like little sprints. So 1981, I went to Charles River. 1982, I moved to Pawtucket Country Club, worked for Les Kennedy. So I wanted to learn how to teach and Les was the premier teacher in the region. I mean, I remember club pros going to get lessons. So I said, well, he must be the best if he's teaching the club pros. So I kind of watched him for a year. He shortly retired. And then I went to work down in Connecticut for a fellow named Don Ross. And he was at Glastonbury Hills. And he taught me a little bit more merchandising and tournament management. And then I got the call from, once again, Mel Cow and a friend named Frank Brown that Woods Hole needed an assistant, that Dutch Westner was looking for an assistant. So that was 1985. And I've been here ever since. So I kind of bounced around. So you've got 1985, and then it's no longer the sprint, working for Dutch for that year. What was it that sold you, Glenn, on Woods Hole? Charles River, Pawtucket, going to Connecticut. What sold you on Woods Hole? Was it unique? Was it totally different than your three previous experiences? Was it intimidating? What was attractive to you about Woods Hole? Was it a challenge? I call myself the accidental head pro because I finished the season of 1985 as an assistant. I go down to Stewart, Florida, to a club called Mariner Sands, and I'm kind of a winter assistant. Dutch's wife passed away in December of 85, and he announced to the board, I'm done, I want to resign. And they said, whoa, but you're not 65, he couldn't collect Social Security. And they created a job called Director of Golf for him, and they elevated me from assistant to head pro. So from 1986 to 1990, Dutch was the director of golf, an ambassador, if you will. Taught his favorite students, played with the guys, but sold me the golf shop and basically just kind of waited it out till 
1990, when we had a big retirement party for him. June 9th, 1990, called Dutch Day. I still remember it because I have the golf ball. So, Well, taking on that assistant role, not knowing what the future held, that turned out to be a great decision because then the next year you end up becoming the head pro. Right. And that's why I call myself the accidental head pro because I didn't even have my class A card yet. But they must have seen something. And I said, I'll do my best and let's play it by ear. I mean, I've only had one contract in my life, and that was the assistant pro's contract. And I still have that somewhere. And I've been working since <laughs> 1986 without a contract. It's just been a handshake. We just kind of work it out every year. And some people, you know, they come in and the consultants and they're just horrified. You don't have a contract. And I said, well, it seems to have worked out fine. <laughs> works out for Glenn, works out for Woods Hole. I'm interested, you know, you've been there since 85 as the leading person in the operation, the head pro just looking through that 2023 lens, Glenn, for golf professionals that are entering the industry, that was a fire drill process for Woods Hole back in 85. But how has the hiring process changed for building a team of assistants and the folks that you are putting around you and you're surrounding yourself each year? The crop of assistant pros current day, they're in the catbird seat. I mean, there are so many great clubs looking for quality assistants. And there is a shortage. It's not a profession that a lot of people are getting into. I mean, when an assistant's job opened up at, say, a Wellesley, you might have 50, 60 people going after that one spot. And now I hear stories where they might get seven or eight resumes, and three or four of them, they go into the circular file. So it's a challenge. And I've been blessed. I've had great assistants. Some have stayed in the business. Some have got out of the business. And for a while, a lot got out of the business to the extent I thought I was the Dr. Kevorkian of the PGA. I thought I was killing more assistance and enthusiasm. But they went on to great careers in marketing and selling medical devices. But they wanted kind of a more normal Monday to Friday, nine to five lifestyle. And being a PGA pro sometimes is like the priesthood. I mean, you're on duty 24-7, I mean, or at least it's how I chose to do it. But God bless the married pros with kids. I don't know how they do it. I mean, I'm in awe of them. It seems like there have been a lot of changes in the industry, too, certainly in recent years, where there's a focus on trying to create more reasonable hours for these assistant pros and head professionals. So that's been a positive change, because certainly what you're saying has been true in the industry for a long time. But going back to your starting out again at Woods Hole, when you took over that head professional position, again, you've been in that position ever since. It's pretty impressive, as we just talked about, the nature of the business. Professionals are often moving. And again, you've been there now for going on 40 years. Can you describe some of the initial challenges you had, looking back, when you became head professional? Were there any mistakes that you made in those first 6, 12, 18 months that you learned from, or that any young professionals can take advice from you on? It seems kind of funny, but we went to some merchandising seminar, and this fellow said, if your counter is by the front door, move your scorecards or your pencils to the other side of the room. So the members have to walk through the shop to get the scorecard and the pencil, right? They might see a hat, a shirt, and they might purchase <laughs> it. So I tried that. And I go in the back room. Next thing I know, the scorecards and pencils are back by the front door. I go, huh, I didn't do it. So I move it again and I do something. And the pencils and scorecards are back at the front door. And this wonderful fellow named Gil Wright, picture Jimmy Stewart, the actor. He said, Glenn, somebody keeps moving these pencils and scorecards way over here. 
they belong here. I go, oh, absolutely, Mr. Wright. If I find that person, I'll make sure that they don't do that again. <laughs> so it taught me that change comes very slow at Woods Hole. It's kind of like the tides out here. They kind of ebb and flow and move, and that's, that's how you kind of get through the career. I mean, I've tried things that have failed miserably, and then other things, they're still in use today. Walking into your shop, Glenn, and talking to you or seeing you out at different events, everything does seem to come easy for Glenn Kelly from an outsider. But is there other aspects of the job that even today still challenge you after all these years? Any side of the business? I cannot do an Excel spreadsheet. <laughs> <laughs> and I get lost going to a chapter event. God didn't bless me with a compass. Thank God for Google Maps now, because before that, I used to pull over and ask for directions. So. No, but I just love people. I love listening to people. I love listening to their stories. And I do have a genuine interest in what they're saying because you learn so much. I mean, the things I've learned and the people that I've met, I don't think I could have got that as an accountant. They're on their leisure time too. So theoretically, they're in a great mood. Exactly. And even in just the seven years that I've been fortunate enough to be at Woods Hole four or five times you've been generous enough to have the We Met Fund there and myself. And it's one of my favorite places in Massachusetts. And even in those seven years, I've seen changes. I mean, just looking at the clubhouse, it's unbelievably gorgeous. In your time, I know you're modest, but looking back at your years of head professional and the legacy you've created, what are you most proud of? Or what are some changes at the club that you are extremely proud of? Just being able to adapt. Change doesn't come easy for me, but you take a breath and a step back and Change isn't bad. It's for the good. You might stomp your feet a couple of times or kick the desk, but in the long run, change is good. You better adapt or you die. We used to do everything on paper here, carbon paper. I don't know if anybody remembers that, but then the computer came in and here we are. I mean, the Golf Genius, TPP, the tournament pairings program, which I loved that went by the wayside for Golf Genius. And if I didn't learn that, I'd be unemployed probably. But what am I most proud of? The Golf Fights Cancer Marathon, making sure that we have a small but enthusiastic caddy program here. I guess those would be the two things. This is a very generous membership. I mean, very, very generous. One person, you know, he may not buy a hat, but when he drops off a check for Golf Fights Cancer and I look at the amount, I mean, I just get blown away. So don't judge the book by its cover. Glenn, you've been doing that golf marathon with Golf Fights Cancer for maybe 15 years or so. I know you did it down at Woods Hole. Then you're back up with the whole group up at Juniper. You're really involved in the community. I mean, you're incredibly supportive of We Met, and I want to get to a little bit of the impact you've made in our community and the, you know, your recent award. But what are some of the other elements of Falmouth, of the Cape? I know you're very patriotic, some veterans groups. Talk to us about where that came from? Was that from your parents in terms of giving back, paying it forward and charitable endeavors? Yeah, we grew up in Pembroke. I mean, it was like the wonder years. It's the best town to grow up in. You did the Gettysburg Address on Memorial Day on the Village Green by the Center Elementary School. And my dad was very civic-minded. And I think that carries with you. Obviously, you are very charitable, as Colin just mentioned, and specifically to the We Met Fund, we've just been extraordinarily lucky and grateful to have you in our community. In your years as head professional, you've been very involved in the hiring and the professional development of young people at Woods Hole, be that as caddies, in the pro shop, working on the golf course. And it seems like a fitting place to mention that in your time, 
52 young men and women from Woods Hole have received WeMet scholarships totaling well over $300,000 in need-based awards. It's an incredible legacy to your impact as a mentor. It's amazing. Yeah, I didn't realize it was that many. You lose track of time. But, I mean, we are linked with Francis WeMet forever because he played the first round of golf here when we expanded to 18 holes. And Bob Donovan would tell me that he did that at a lot of golf courses. He, he would open up a golf course and play the first round, his gift back to golf. And it wasn't just one time. In doing research for our 125th anniversary book, Francis met came down here many times. I guess we had a Saturday morning men's group. And in the Falmouth Enterprise archives, his name is mentioned more than once. So we still don't know what the connection was to Woods Hole, whether he had a couple of close friends here, but he was here more than once. And that's kind of a kick when you start turning over the rocks and finding out all this new information. Absolutely. And it's a cool legacy from him in the flesh being at the club all the way through to today with that many scholars receiving that much money. And for you personally, how have you gone about guiding those young people over the years to consider applying for a WeMet scholarship? It takes time. It's not easy to apply for the scholarship. It's not easy to get it. But you've been able to get a lot of kids to get over the hump and apply. What's been your trick for having such a successful program? First thing we do is that beautiful video that you did. I mean, that's what the kids watch first. And maybe I haven't watched it twice. You know, that caddy training video, that is the best thing we met's ever done, the we met fund. It breaks the ice and it kind of gives them a clue on what we're going to talk about in the next four weeks when we go out on the golf course and we start to train the caddies. And it's not for everybody. And we try and tell them that. First, I ask if they play golf or if they have an interest in golf. And if they say no and no, then I say, well, why do you want to be a caddy then? There are so many other jobs you could do. And they just kind of, well, my friend caddies, and it looked like fun. I said, okay. So not only are we teaching them how to caddy, but we're teaching them the game of golf. And that doesn't happen in four weeks. So some slip through the cracks, sadly, but others go on. And we have so many used clubs here that we'll fix them up with a set of clubs. We'll give them lessons if they want and try and keep them in the game. It's obviously worked. It really starts with that video. That video is just tremendous. And it's a team effort, Glenn. I, I know you're not going to let us get off the hook to heaping all of the credit to you. And the members of our partner clubs are so important. What has been the experience for you working with the members who become the WeMet chairs, the heads of the WeMet committees over the years? They've been terrific. Starting off with Jean McAuliffe, this salty character. She was a great player back in the day in the Babe Zaharias days when she was Jean O'Neill. And then later, Gino McAuliffe, and she won a ton of tournaments on the Massachusetts stage. Her best friend was Pippi O'Connor. So it was great to listen to all the stories. And she loved the We Met Fund. She loved everything about it, the caddies, where they were going to school, what were they reading? She'd always ask them, what are you reading? She loved reading and what the kids were reading for pleasure, not just a textbook. Then Dick Gill came along, great football player for Boston College and a caddy himself, and then Ricky Kelleher, who's still at the club, and then finally John Butterworth. So, I mean, I've been blessed with wonderful We Met chairs. Well, it's been the glue that's kept all that together, the great transitions. Glenn Kelly has been there for all of them. And again, our audience wasn't at the event where we publicly recognize it, but for all your work and support on behalf of the fund, everything we've talked about today and what you've done for the young people. Again, this is changing someone's trajectory in life, hiring them, mentoring them, sending them our way for the financial benefit, whether they go into golf or not. But that impact is why you were named 
the 2023 We Met Golf Professional of the Year. So just again, congratulations on so much success, but impact, Glenn, for us and for those kids. Well, I was delighted. I was honored and humbled. And I do have to share it with everybody here at the club and especially, oh my gosh, goes back to like Greg Young, the Borghese brothers who did all the training. I mean, I didn't have time to train all the caddies, so they would do it. So they share in the award. I know I'm leaving probably 47 others out, but they just kind of stand out. And there's so many. One of the things that stands out to us, the whole team here, we smile when we see Glenn Kelly and the carpool from Woods Hole come up to our annual banquet every year up in Boston. It's always a highlight to see how passionate you are about that. You know, it's not me driving because we wouldn't have made it in one piece. (laughs) I would have ended up in New Hampshire. Uh, well, Glenn, anyone who knows you knows that while well, you're too modest to say you're a local legend in the Falmouth Cape Cod area, not just Woods Hole, but in that beautiful downtown street in Falmouth. Now, what are some of your favorite aspects of the community there? Are there any local restaurants or vendors that hold a particular soft spot for you and your many years of living in the area? Well, <laughs> Colin knows where I'm going with this one. There's a little Irish pub called Liam McGuire's. I think they know you. When the apartment building I was living in was sold, I had to move out and I had to go find a new place to live. So I used the pub as ground zero. And Gina McCall was the realtor. And she said, there's a condo practically across the street. I said, I'll take it. She goes, do you want to see it? I go, if it's across the street, I'll take it. I mean, it's fine. It's four miles from the club. So there I've been ever since. I just wanted to be sure that you had a chance to shout out that famous location. as best Guinness, I think, in the area, you know? They are the number one port of Guinness on Cape Cod. Agreed. It's like a second home. My parents had a place called Bobby Hackett's on Route 53. If they weren't at home, we'd call Bobby Hackett's second. But, you know, there they were. So the same can be said of me. If I'm not home or at the club, check in at Liam McGuire's. I'm probably there. Well, the community at Liam McGuire's, the Falmouth community, and certainly the community at Woods Hole are very fortunate to have had you be part of it. But on our part, from the We Met Fund's point of view, we are beyond fortunate to have you as a leader at the club, as an alum of the organization. We're extremely grateful for everything you do. You are more than deserving of being the We Met Golf Professional of the Year. So thank you so much for everything you've done. Thank you for your time today. We're very fortunate to have you, and we look forward to many more years of scholars from Woods Hole Golf Club. Oh, I mean, we're going to keep doing this. Yeah, we're not going away. Glenn, we can't thank you enough for your time, your stories, your energy, and really your passion and friendship to so many at the We Met Fund. It's one of the best experiences I've ever had in golf, and it goes back to those early days. 